0: And the Gospel of Luke, <clears throat> chapter 10 is where we're going to be at, and um, as we begin to prepare to go into this, this chapter, there's there's several accounts the, uh, of different events that are going to go on, but there's this one kind of thread that, that takes us through each account that we're going to follow this morning, and I'll start off by reminding you, some of you guys know uh, a bit about my past, some of you Some of you may not, but um, uh, real briefly, I was raised in a mainstream denominational church, and as a result, I was uh, baptized as an infant, and I went to church every Sunday morning. It's what my family did, Um, and I even attended our churches, the church that we went to, their parochial school until the sixth grade. And um, I stopped going in the sixth grade because I got kicked out, and because... I, I don 't know why I was was innocent <laughs> and um, in this church and in the school that I went to until the sixth grade, I learned a lot about the religion that I was born into. However, I did not learn much about the Bible, and I was uh, everything that I was taught. About God or what I was taught about God mostly had to do with rules and regulations and then of course the consequences that um, I would face for breaking those rules and regulations of God. And I learned very little about God's love, God's grace, or God's forgiveness. In fact, I don't even ever remember being told about the good news message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus or nor that I could have a personal relationship with, with God through Jesus because of what had been done for me on the cross. Consequently, the result of knowing about all these rules and regulations uh, without being taught about a, a, a love relationship um, it, it, that I could have had with God, which I do now have with God, that in that moment um, really fed that attitude and heart of rebellion that was inside of me. We always, we always like to say, rules without relationship breeds rebellion, and that's true in regards to many aspects of life, but certainly in, in regards to our walk with the Lord. That's why relationships are so important. And because of my experience, I saw, um, I saw only condemnation uh, and judgment and because of that, I believed—I really believed that I was destined for hell. I believed in hell. I believed in God. Um, and I believed I was going to hell, and I had no hope. I had no hope. Consequently, <clears throat> what that caused is I wanted nothing to do with God, and I wanted nothing to do with uh, uh, um, uh, people who were claiming to have following after God that I knew. Uh, because I believed that God was already con- had already condemned me, and uh, those people that I went to church with, not all of them, um, but I felt like, and maybe it was my own personal feeling, you know, I don't want to, maybe I was just projecting that on them, but whatever it was, um, I felt like they were there just pointing out all my faults and failures. And um, <clears throat> I don't have time to go into all the details, how I've come to now see things differently and. And how I now have a relationship with God. But I will say this. After trying to do things my way and still finding no hope or no peace in what this life or what this world has to offer, I've come to know about the God of the Bible. And about His grace. I've come to know about His love. And I've come to know His forgiveness as a result of my faith in Jesus. And as a result of my faith in Jesus, I now have hope. We have hope. And I tell you these things this morning because I remember distinctly when I, when I finally gave my life to Jesus. I actually sat in a Calvary Chapel for over a year before I accepted Christ. And there was many, many opportunities to do so. But um, I'm probably more stubborn than, than the rest of you. I don't know. Um, but I do remember when I finally accepted Jesus as my Lord and entered into relationship with him. I remember that, that um, when I, and in that moment, I was also done with the religion thing. Because for me, it was not only an entering into relationship with, with, with God through his son Jesus, it was setting aside that past, that religion of the rules and the regulations. But I was faced with this question. I, I remember making that decision, and it was shortly thereafter that I was like, what am, well, what am I supposed to do now? What do I do now, right? I certainly wasn't going to do the religion thing. And, and as I entered into relationship with Jesus and into being restored back to God, it was this question of what, did, what do I do now? What does it look like now? What do I do with this new life that I've been given to live? And I believe that this is a question that all of us at some time or another or even that we continually uh, seek to, to get answered, that, that we as believers and followers of Christ, no matter what our past is, yours doesn't have to be like mine, but I think that that's a question we, we, we constantly face. And, and the fortunate thing for us is that God's will, which is, is, is really the, the root to the, to the answer of the question, is looking at God's will for our lives and what He now expects of us what God has for us in those two things, his will and his expectations for us, they're 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 never hidden. It's not hidden. God doesn't hide that from us. Like, okay, here's this new life, now go figure it out. You know, he communicates to us. And in this chapter, and finally getting to the point of it, in this chapter is is the answer in part. There's more to it than this, but this is a foundational thing that we're going to be looking at. In this chapter is is the answer to this question, what am I supposed to do now? What are we supposed to be doing? And in this chapter, we're going to read of three events, three major events that we're going to highlight. And each each of the events illustrates a specific thing that we're supposed to be doing with this new life that we've been given to live. The first is seen in the accounts of Jesus appointing and sending out 70 of his disciples, we're told, who were sent out to go before him into every one of the cities and every place with the message of the kingdom of God as they were making their way into Jerusalem. In light of this, we see that we're called, if you're taking notes, we're called to be ambassadors for our Lord, for our King those who have been sent out. People have been sent out this world to represent him and his kingdom and to tell others about the kingdom of God, about how the kingdom of God is near. And guys, it is near. It's near. Secondly, through the parable of the Good Samaritan, we see that we're also called to be neighbors. People, what does that mean? People who are looking for opportunities to show God's grace, God's mercy, and God's love in the name of Jesus, who has sent us out to those who we come in contact with, called to be neighbors. But more importantly, or most importantly, the heart of whatever we're called or sent to do, okay? The heart of whatever we're called to sent to do is this devotion, our devotion to Jesus. So primarily, we must be worshipers that's what we're called to do with this new life that we've been given, to be worshipers who take time to listen to God's Word. And and we'll see this in this account with Mary and Martha when Jesus comes and visits them. One's working and one's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and they're angry at, you know, their sisters, and Martha's angry at Mary. But in this, we see this that martha it says chose he, jesus said she chose the, the 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 better thing and and that's to be the worshiper I have fellowship with jesus to listen to him spend time with him and as ambassadors and neighbors and and and, and worshipers um in this first account um we see um the 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 ambassador a part of it we read about the 70 disciples of jesus who were sent out just like the 12 who had been previously sent out and so if, if you'll follow along with me i'll read we'll read the beginning of this account and stop and kind of go through it but it says in verse one of of uh chapter 10 here in the gospel of lucas is after these things the Lord appointed seventy others also and sent them two by two before his his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So remember, journeying back to Jerusalem from the, the Sea of Galilee, the region of Galilee. And now he sends this group of seventy out before him. And Jesus has information for them. He's giving them a commission, he's giving them a purpose. And he's giving them uh, instructions and warnings. And the very first thing he says to him in verse 2 is this. And then he said to them, Truly the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go. Your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Don't you wish he would have said you're going out as wolves among lambs? You know, the the lamb is, lambs get eaten by wolves. So um, there's a message there, a a specific thing to key into for us also today. So he said this for him, Carry neither money bag, knapsack, or sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as set before you. Verse 9, and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which we... Uh, for the mighty works which were done in you had been done entire in Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, <clears throat> and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me, he who rejects you rejects me, and who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Then the seventy returned, it says with joy, saying. Lord even the demons are subject to us in your name and he said to them i saw satan fall like lightning from heaven behold i give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all power over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you nevertheless do not rejoice in this That the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And man, guys, that's something to rejoice about for sure. Our names have been written in heaven. In that hour, verse 21, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father... For so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, who the Son is, except the Father, and who the Father is, except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to him to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, "Blessed are the eyes which see the things which you see." For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Let's pray. And Father, I, I, I'm grateful for the reminder in that last part that we read because Father, you've given us ears to hear and, and eyes to see and hearts to receive and we've, we've um, received the blessing and we've been called and, and um, been accepted into your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that the spiritual understanding that you've given us through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, Lord, would give us wisdom and to um, hear what you have for us again today, Lord, that the knowledge we receive would be rightly applied to our lives, that we would um, know and take action in regards to what to do and what we should be doing and to continue doing with this new life that you've given us these new people that you've made us, this new heart that you've placed in us. And so, Lord, as we wait for your return with great excitement and anticipation and whatever that looks like for us individually, Father, may we be about your business. May we know your will for our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, even though there were 70 men here that were sent out, two by two this time, uh, by Jesus... To go before him and to all the cities and all the places. Even though they were not called apostles, they weren't the official 12 who were, who were later called apostles, we see that they nevertheless were apostle-like. And apostle-like in the sense where it means those who have been sent out, one who has been sent in that, in that kind of way. And they were appointed by Jesus and sent out with a commission to be his representatives. And think about it, it, it when you're a representative, you're to represent the person who's sending you out, right? And, and and that's that's what this 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 first aspect of of what to do with our lives is tied to and and what we see is is and with this commission they were truly ambassadors they were ambassadors for their king for they were sent to go before him into every city in order to prepare the way for his coming the king is coming the kingdom of god is coming near you and they were to preach about the kingdom of God. And so their call to be ambassadors for Jesus was a very important one. And like I already mentioned, it's important, more important, I think it's more important today than it ever has been. The kingdom of God is drawing near. And people need to know Christ. And we have been sent out as ambassadors to be representatives of him. To tell people about the kingdom of God. It's an important mission that they were called to and one that we must walk in as well. But we can see that this mission, and Jesus is going to tell them some specific things about it, and they're a message to us as well. These words of Christ are a message to us for those who are answering this call to be his ambassadors. And the first thing that we see Jesus tell them is that it's going to be difficult. The mission he was sending them on was going to be a difficult mission as he compared his ambassadors in verse 2 to laborers laborers who are being sent out into the harvest. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to work in a field and, and um, do any kind of harvesting. Um, and it's, if you have, it's, it's really an opportunity not in the good sense. Um, I've had the opportunity, and for me it was torture growing up. I've had the opportunity growing up to work in a field and do harvesting. And... Um, what I know is it's hard work, and I know this because I've had several opportunities to go to my uncle's farm in eastern Oregon, where it gets like 175 degrees out in the summertime, dry, and, and to work in the fields. And um, I, I worked as the laborer in the field, not the supervisor, but the laborer. And um, I picked apples, not just like apples off of an apple tree, like Like orchards of apples all day long, day in and day out. I I helped harvest onions and potatoes, and and when you do that, there's this thing, I don't know what it's called, but it's a it's it's a torture device because you got it right on the back of this thing, up and down the field in the in the dry of the of the summer harvesting the onions and the potatoes and it goes over this conveyor belt and there's like four of you standing on the back side of it and what you do is you pick the dirt clods out as it keeps harvesting and turning up the potatoes and turning up the onions and all day long you're picking dirt clods with dirt in your face and in your lungs and in your nose and in your ears everywhere and so i did i've done potatoes i've done corn i've done wheat i've done alfalfa but my least favorite is strawberries for a whole summer, I went to my aunt's house and had to go pick strawberries. And I think my, and anyway, I could go on forever. Don't do that. I hate strawberries still to this day because of that. Laboring. And what I learned is no matter what type of crop is being harvested, it's hard work. But it can be rewarding. It can be when it's over. <laughs> and um, it can be, Hard, even when there are many people there to help you, even when. So with this comparison, as, as, as ambassadors who are also laborers, who are going into the field to reap a harvest, we should expect that as we're sent out as ambassadors of the kingdom of God in order to reap a spiritual harvest, we should expect that it's going to be hard work. It's the first thing, but rewarding work. Another thing to point out in regards to the 70 men is that the that, um, we were told that they were being sent into a field where the harvest was great and the workers are few, and and that's often was the case with my uncle. He, he had uh, he had about 160 acres that he would farm, but he, well, just say the reason why I was there is because um he didn't hire many laborers. It was usually a family event, and um, the laborers that he did hire there were few, and um. And so what I often would do would, would, when we would go to the days I would look for the easiest job to do that never happened. And, and, and so when we see that there are few workers, often that might be what we do. We might be praying for an easier job. Lord, this is really hard. There's, there's few workers. I know you've been sent me out as ambassador and this is what you've called me to do, but is there something not easier that I can do? And that's often what I would do in my uncle's farm, and, and, and but yet we see that these ambassadors, what were they instructed to pray for? They weren't told, well, pray for an easier job because it's going to be hard. They said, pray for more laborers to come and join them. And because we find ourselves also in a situation where the harvest appears to be great and the workers appear to be few, we need to pray. We need to pray the same prayer. In light of this, I think it's important for us to take note of the fact that Jesus, in verse two, um, in verse two, we see that um, it was the laborers, and I'm going to contrast this with another word. It was the laborers, not the spectators, who are who are called to pray for more laborers. And I point that out because um, we can find, I think we can find ourselves when we see the need, we can we can we can be praying for someone else to go and do the work that we're unwilling to do. Lord said, pray for additional labors. He didn't say pray as a spectator who said, Lord, why don't you just send somebody over there to do that? And we might find that. We might notice a need and not engage it, and, and we find ourselves praying for someone else to do the work that we're unwilling to do instead of jumping into the work and asking God to then send someone to help us. Bottom line is we've all been called to be the Lord's ambassadors, and we've all been called to to be sent out as a laborer, so being an ambassador is important. It's difficult, but also according to verse 3, one other finer point here is that we see that it can also be dangerous. It can. And this is why Jesus said that I'm sending you out into enemy territory as lambs among wolves, and last time I checked, I said wolves want to kill and eat the lambs, and Today, I read some articles. If you ever, if, there's a great website called Voice of the Martyrs, and it keeps a world account of the persecution that's going on within the church today. And um, never in the history of the church, listen, never in the history of the church has there been such great persecution and great martyrs in, in vast numbers than ever throughout history than today, today. And another, I think it's another evidence that the, the, the end is drawing near. And I don't mean like the Christian persecution that we may find ourselves experiencing here in this country. And, and it is. There's, there's, there are forces against us. But even again in Sri Lanka, more churches burned, more people killed. In China, they've started, there was a time there was a lull where, you know, there's just the underground church in China, and if you were a Christian, there was a death sentence. And then the Chinese government, over the last probably 15 years, had relented a little bit in that. It wasn't such a bad thing, but now you go and read, it's, it's they're killing Christians all over again. And and we may not, we may not be threatened with our own lives, but there are situations that we go into where we are where we're going to be hurt and where we step out as ambassadors and people are going to hate us. They're going to reject us. They're not going to receive us. And as the, 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 the end draws near and we come close to the Lord's return, who knows what it will be like for us even in this country. But, but, but it's not an excuse to not go. The Lord tells us ahead of time what it's going to be like, what we may be up against. and so it can be difficult it's important and it can be dangerous and in light of this information about the mission that jesus was sending these 70 disciples out and the kind of mission that he sends us out as well as we're called to walk as ambassadors in this new life we might expect and we definitely would hope for jesus to then go in verse four to then say something like okay so go get some provisions in place Get some money, get some extra resources, and certainly go get some weapons to protect yourself because it's dangerous out there, right? But this is not what Jesus said. Jesus said the exact opposite. He specifically told them in verse 4 to go without a money bag, to go without a a backpack, and don't even take an extra pair of sandals. And then he sent them out. And in doing so, there's a, there's a very important truth being revealed to us here. Because in doing so, Jesus was reinforcing the fact that they needed to reply, rely on him. They had already stumbled with that just like in days before. Jesus was on the mountain. They're casting out a demon. They fail at it, right? And he says, that's because you guys weren't praying and fasting. You stopped relying on me. And now Jesus was calling them to go out into this place, take a step of faith where there would be complete, complete reliance on him for, for, for their protection and for their provision, as well as for the fellow laborers. And the point is, as ambassadors, guys, we must walk in faith in order to do the work that God has called us to do, faith that God will protect us and faith that God will provide for our needs. And when we do this, and we know this is how we're called to send out, be sent out, you know what it does? It removes the excuses. I don't have this to go do that. There's not enough people to go and uh, to to take care of this need that 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 there's that you're you're showing me. It's going to be dangerous. They may not like me. They may hurt me. We're not called to go into this this life as Christ's representatives, looking at ourselves, our own needs, our own resources to be able to do what He's called us to do. That's not that's not a variable in the equation. We're to trust in him. We're to go in faith. Now when we consider that we're also ambassadors who have been sent out, if you will, into enemy territory, it's important to know what kind of ambassador we've been called to be, right? I think a lot of Christians lose sight of this. and we, we Sometimes we go out with a sword and we start, you know, like, yeah, cutting people up like we're some crusaders, you know, be baptized or die. You know, We may not say it like that, but we're, we enter into this battle against them and speaking truth in a way that's unloving. But that's not the kind of ambassadors that we've been called to be. And we see this in light of what Jesus spoke to his disciples in these verses that follow after he says, I'm sending you out and he, as, 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 as lambs among wolves. He goes on and says in verses 5 to 9 that we're basically... As we we listen to the words that Jesus spoke to these men, he said he spoke about peace and were to be these ambassadors of peace, those who pronounce peace and those who receive sons of peace, those who are being sent to bring healing to the sick, the good news of of, of salvation to the lost. And the Apostle Paul wrote about us being ambassadors of peace, or himself really being an ambassador of peace also to the early church, and said this in Second Corinthians chapter five. He said, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Okay, think about that. We are ambassadors for Christ, he said, God making his appeal through us. That's important, don't you think? God's got a message, and he sent us as his representatives. And and it's not just this message of, ah, tomorrow it's going to rain, it's a life or death issue. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. It's it's a life and death. For those who don't hear the message or don't receive the message, it's judgment. He says God is making his appeal through us. He says, so we implore you, and here it is, here's the message, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be at peace with God. Ambassadors of peace. We come with a peace treaty. God, God wants you to make peace with him. He wants to make peace with you. Receive him through his son Jesus. Be saved. Be forgiven. And he said this. He said, he said, he goes on and says, for our sake he made him, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. What an awesome message We've been given as God makes that appeal to us. Be saved for the one who has known no sin has come to be sin for us so that we might become righteous before God. Now even though we have a message of hope, a message of forgiveness, and a message of peace, guys hear this. Jesus is very clear on this. Not everyone's going to receive our message that we as ambassadors have been sent with. Jesus knew this, and this is why He had given further instructions there in verses 10-11 through to those 70 men before sending them out, and told them that if they were not received, then they should just move on. That's a good message. In other words, they were not to waste their time with people who were unwilling to receive the message of peace they were bringing. And by this time, we know that Jesus had experienced much rejection in His three years of ministry, and He had even done very many miraculous and wonderful things in these specific cities that he talks about, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, and they all had refused to receive him for the most part in these cities. And when, and when they rejected Jesus, what we see, his example to his disciples is he reminded them of this as he spoke about this judgment that was coming upon them. He simply moved on and continued to seek the lost in other places, Nevertheless, Jesus pointed out in verses 12 and 13 that those who rejected him, they were choosing a path that led to judgment. Again, the, 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 the significance of, of the mission is, is conveyed here when we, we see that, that, that a person's decision is, is, has eternal consequences or eternal reward. And with all this Jesus wanted his ambassadors he wants us also to remember that that they and we are representatives of him. This is why he said in verse 16 that when some accepted what they were saying, that when someone accepted what they were saying, the message that they were bringing to him that they were actually accepting him. It wasn't about them. And when someone rejected them, they were actually rejecting him who had sent them. And, and again, that, that, that removes another excuse. It's like, I've gone and they, they rejected me. They didn't want to hear it. Woe is me. It's not about you. It's not about me. And the point is, is, we're not responsible for how a person responds to the message that we've been given or sent to give. We're only responsible to do what we've been sent to do. Furthermore, there's no reason for us to take it personally when someone will not receive us because it's not us who they're rejecting. But remember, guys, the harvest is great. There are many who are ready to receive. And, and when the 70 came back to Jesus, we're told that they were overjoyed from their experience of victory. But the cool thing is that in verse 18, is how Jesus explained how their victories were, were um, that they were reporting were actually defeats that Satan was experiencing. And I love that because anytime we get the opportunity to share our faith with somebody, tell them about Jesus, and they too receive it, it's a defeat to Satan. And so we're called to be the Lord's ambassadors, the Lord's ambassadors who represent him in this world and in this new life that we've been given to live. We're also called to be neighbors. Guys, we're called to be neighbors. Those who show mercy, and this is the next account or this next account, is, it, it, it reveals it to us. So picking back up in verse 25, it says there in this parable of the Good Samaritan, and, and we get a little background to the parable. We see this encounter between Jesus and this man who knew the law. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is, it, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so he answered and said, the lawyer to Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, here's a key, you might underline this word, he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And I would, I would propose that that question is the wrong question to ask. We don't need to ask ourselves who is our neighbor. I'll get to that here in a little bit, but focus in on that. So verse 30, it says, Then Jesus answered and said, He said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and, and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Then on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said to him, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, go And do likewise. Now, what we read here with this man, who is also described in verse 25 as a lawyer, meaning something, somebody, a student of the old law of the Old Testament law. That's who this guy was. For him to stand up and to ask a question to Jesus, who was a teacher, a rabbi, about something doctrinal like this, was pretty common to do, culturally speaking. It wasn't out of line. And and this is this is what. This man appears to have been doing when he asked Jesus the question, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? However, it's it also appears that this man was making, this man was asking a question, perhaps out of, I, I really believe this, out of a personal concern for his own spiritual well-being. And that he was honestly seeking the truth. Because once Jesus had confronted this man with the truth in verse 28, we see that this man unfortunately looked to dance around what Jesus had said rather than honestly taking what, taking what Jesus said and, and, and applying it to himself and looking within himself and perhaps his own past, his, his past performance in, his, in what he had done or had not done to obey these two commands that he was familiar with. And this is why he, according to verse 29, looked, it says, to justify himself by responding to Jesus and asking, who is my neighbor? Now remember that word justify. The Bible tells us that we've been justified through our faith in Jesus Christ. That we've been made right with God. And God now sees us as though as innocent, without, without sin. Just as though we were without sin. Justified. And when you begin to think about that word justify, lots of times we want to justify ourselves with the things that we do or do not do as well. And we begin to make excuses, or we question. You know, oh, did it? Did it, is that what it really means? <laughs> Fifty-five speed limit. Is that that's just a suggestion, right? Well, there's nobody on the road. It's only me. I got a long ways to go. I, I'm very familiar with that conversation in my head uh, when it comes to obeying the speed limit. But he—that's what this guy's doing. He's he's looking to justify himself based upon. The, 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 the conversation that he had with Jesus and conviction that he was feeling in his own heart. Because if, that was, if this was really what was needed for eternal life, guaranteed he was looking at himself and going, well, I, I've not done this. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so he comes to Jesus and going, is, is, it, is it really? Who, who is my neighbor? What does that really mean? And so, this is why he, right, asked the question, and really what he was saying is this, who exactly must I love? Who exactly do I have to be neighborly to? Who must I love like I love myself? And the point is, is even though this man gave the right answer, as he quoted scripture, a student of the law, he was, he was unwilling to. He was unwilling to apply this truth to his own life or unwilling to admit his own lack of love for God and his own lack of love for others, which we can also be guilty of. So instead of being justified by confessing his failures and throwing himself on the mercy of God, he, as verse 29 says, wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus, who is my neighbor. However, Jesus... As we read the parable, we see that he did not directly answer this guy's question. Well, your neighbor is the one that has the address next to you on the right, and the one that has the ex- address of the one next to you on the left. The guy across the street, eh, nah, forget about him. <laughs> not really your neighbor. I mean, that's kind of what, what he was asking for, but Jesus Jesus takes him down a path. And, and as Jesus takes him down the path with the parable of the good Samaritan, he does so in order to, to enlighten this guy, to give him understanding to this that the problem wasn't wasn't who is my neighbor the problem is was already in the guy's heart and it was only evidenced by asking the question and when it was all over we see from verse 37 here as he responded that this guy came to understanding that the problem was in his heart now, in this account, Jesus sets the stage in verse 30 by speaking of the road, a road. You can still go travel this road today that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a real road, and it's called the, called the Jericho, or Jericho Road. I don't know what it's like today. I've never been on it, but I do know that at this time, it was a well-traveled road, but it was dangerous. It's about eight miles, 18 miles long, and it descends about 3,000 feet from Jerusalem to Jericho. And at places, it's very narrow, three foot wide. And so it was when a certain man was coming down this dangerous road, we're told from Jerusalem that thieves attacked him, stole all that he had, even the clothes off of his back. And they left him lying alongside the road to die, wounded. And this account becomes even more interesting as Jesus then points out that three people came upon this man as he laid there dying. But... Only one of the three stopped to help. The first man was a priest. The second man was a Levite. And the third man was a Samaritan. And if you were here last week, as we studied through the end of Luke chapter 9, you will remember that the Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other. They were not neighbors in any sense. They were adversaries. And that's why James James, and um, John, you know, they get angry at the Samaritans and like, hey, Jesus, you want us to call down fire on these Samaritans and do away with them? So, so we, we get an idea of who the Samaritan is in relationship to the Jewish people. their enemies. And this is significant to know in this account because the Samaritan, who was not in his own neighborhood, if you will, he would have been the least likely to help. But yet he was the one who did. However, the priest and Levi, both who I call them, Let's just say they're professional religious workers, okay? The priest and the Levite. They were in their own neighborhood, and they would have been the most likely persons in this account to help because of their jobs. Professional religious workers, right? Um, But they didn't. And I'm sure that most of us can even think of excuses why these two religious men did not do this in their mind, maybe things that they were thinking, um, as they willfully ignore this, this man who was in need. First of all, they, according to verse 31, look what it tells us. It says that they were on the way down from Jerusalem. They weren't heading up, they were heading down. In other words, what they, were, they were on their way home. They would have been up in Jerusalem serving in the temple, which was a week-long duty call. And so they were anxious to get home, right? Oh, I've worked all day. It's been real, it's been a real long day and I just need to get home and on the other hand they they a legitimate thing as an excuse sometimes our excuses are legitimate not to say being tired isn't a legitimate thing either but but these guys are like i just want to get home i get to my own bed i've been sleeping on a cot whatever it was and the only thing is they could have been fearful right they could have been fearful that these robbers were still around lurking and waiting and, and that may have been even the reason for why they moved clearly to the other side of the road. It's a trap, maybe. Maybe the, the, the thieves are still there, and now what happened to this guy is going to happen to me. Or perhaps they figured um, that uh, someone else would come along the way. It's a well-traveled road. Uh, maybe they passed a few people behind them, and um, they figured, ah, someone else will take care of it, certainly. And so they kept going. But the Samaritan, according to verse 33, it says that he had compassion. And he was moved to do something when he saw this man, and he risked his own life, and he spent his own money, uh, two denarii, a total of two days' wages, in order to help. And the, 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 the example the Samaritan gives us, listen, the Samaritan, the, the, the example that the Samaritan gives us helps us better understand what it means to show mercy, but it also helps us to see that the question that was asked that we must look to answer in light of being called, us being called to be a neighbor, to or this this question, this, this of us being called to love our neighbor um, as ourselves, the question should not be that is asked, is, is not the question of who is my neighbor, but the question of who can we be a neighbor to? Who can we be a neighbor to? You see, God's, God wants to live through us. And it's not just about going through this life and going, oh, I got to be neighborly to this guy. I can be neighborly. It's, 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 we need to look and invest in people and spend time with people and talk to people and see what needs they have. It doesn't have to be someone who's bloodied laying alongside the road who God calls us in this life that we've been given to live this new life to ask the question, who is it today that I can be neighborly to? Not who is my neighbor. Because here's the deal. People need God's grace. Who needs God's grace? Everybody that I know of. Who needs God's love? Everybody that I know of. Who needs God's forgiveness? Everybody that I know of. And if I'm seeking to who I can be neighborly to, these are things that I can pour into their life as an ambassador. For we are ambassadors of peace, of, of peace. And, and so this question is, is who is God putting in our path that we can be an ambassador to, that we can be a neighbor to, that we've been sent into this world to as representatives of Jesus while we're being neighbors, while we're being compassionate people who share the mercy of God. Guys, even to those who are against us. So being an ambassador of peace and a neighbor who is merciful and compassionate are two of the things that answer the question of what I'm supposed to do as followers of Jesus with this new life that I've been given to live. But guys, we'll wrap it up with this. Above being ambassador, above being a neighbor, we're called to be worshipers. And this is illustrated in the last account that we're going to read about in verse 38, it says, now it happened as they went in, as they entered into a certain village, there was a certain woman named Martha, and she welcomed him in Jesus into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who also sat at, at Jesus' feet and heard his word, but Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So apparently, Martha was, uh, or excuse me, Mary was at some point, help and Martha prepare, and then she left, right? Left um, her to serve alone. It says, therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. In this account, we see the, this, this, this call to be a worshiper. And the worship of God, let me place this out, the worship of God is, it must, it has to be, it is the pinnacle of what we are to be doing with this new life that we've been given. And worship needs to be at the heart of all that we do in our Christian life. So it's important that we be the ambassadors of our King, taking the message of the Gospel to those who are still lost, those who are hurting. And it is essential for us to be neighborly, those who are compassionate and show mercy. But listen, before we can rightly represent Jesus as we should or imitate Him as we care for others, we must, we have to spend time with Him and sit at His feet and learn from Him as a worshiper. For when we come to the feet of Jesus to worship and to commune or to have fellowship with Him, this is what takes place. We learn what it is to be holy we learn what it is to be gracious, to be forgiving, and to be loving. And and, we, and, and, and and this is the place with the heart of worship, with the life of worship, there at the feet of Jesus, we learn what it is to be like Jesus. Now I want to point out that Mary and Martha are often contrasted as though each believer must make a choice, that we have to make this choice between being a worker like Martha or a worshiper like Mary... And certainly, all of our personalities and, and gifts are different, but that does not mean that the Christian life is this either or thing. Justin, if you want to come up, we're going to close with this. Listen, consider Martha's situation, okay? She received Jesus into her home, and then she neglected him as she prepared this elaborate meal that he didn't even need. And Jesus. In in, in Jesus' words that he spoke to Martha, in them we see that, that what we do with Jesus is far more important than what we do with Jesus. And it can get backwards at times. And we start doing the religion thing. But what we do for Jesus is so much less important than what we do um, with Jesus. Did I say that right? Let me say that again. What we do with Jesus is far more important than what we do for Jesus. And and again, it's not an either-or situation, guys. What we're here to see in this account is that it's a balance. And this is what Mary examples to us. Because Mary had done her share of work in the kitchen up to this point. And then she chose the better thing. She went to sit at the feet of Jesus in order to hear him, to listen to him teach. And in light of this, we see that, that the key in all of this is to have the right priorities going on in our life. And we must see that Jesus is always first, and then there are others, and then somewhere down the list is ourself. Jesus and others. And so it's vitally important that we spend time at the feet of Jesus every single day, letting him share his word with us. Because the most important part of the Christian life is the part that only God sees. When we're at his feet, when we're worshiping him alone, when we're hearing from him, learning from him, loving him. Because this is where we receive what we need to give out to others in this new life that we've been called to live. And unless we meet with Jesus personally, unless we meet with him privately, you know what will happen. We'll soon end up like Martha, busy and not blessed. And God desires for us to be blessed in this new life that he's given us to live. Father, thank you, God, for your blessing upon our life. Thank you for this this new life that you've given us, that you've made us new creations. And I pray, God, that we would choose the better thing the most important thing, even again today, that as we're sent out, that it would not be without being with you first in your presence, worshiping you, loving you, receiving from you. And so, Lord, we open up again our hearts and our minds to you, asking that you'll pour in, Lord, what needs to be in and take out what needs to be taken out. Lord, help us to trust you, to live and walk by faith, We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys stand and we'll sing one last song of worship.